now I'm looking at Joe Macknick, who was the goalkeeper coach, and he's looking down the bench, and he's like, oh, man, we got to put this guy in, you know? I'm literally 19 years old. I'm like, this, this can't be happening. Like, I, I'm not even supposed to be here. This is For the Love of the Game, hosted by old-school college soccer coaches Ralph Perez and Ray Reed. Between these two, you're listening to 81 years of coaching college athletes, nearly 900 career wins, five national championships, and approximately 17,546 names in their contact lists. On this podcast, they grab some of those names and talk about what's going on in the soccer world today. This week, Ralph and Ray are talking with National Soccer Hall of Famer Tony Miola. Tony grew up playing every sport he could. And in addition to being named one of the top 10 high school soccer players in New Jersey, he was captain of his high school's basketball team and an all-state baseball player. He was even drafted for the New York Yankees, though he didn't sign the contract. Instead, he attended the University of Virginia on a soccer and baseball scholarship, where he trained with coach Bruce Arena for two years before joining the national team. He played in the World Cup the following year, 1990, and later again in 1994 and 2002. In this episode, they're talking about why Tony chose soccer, what he learned in his pro career, and his thoughts on U.S. soccer today, which he also discusses on his Sirius XMFC show, Counterattack. Here they are, Ralph, Ray, and Tony. Tony, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. You know, we've had a lot of real good guests on the show, and you're one of the best we've had. From Connie, New Jersey, three-sport athlete, basketball, baseball, soccer. Talk about your high school time a little bit and what what pushed you into soccer, obviously with being drafted by the Yankees and the opportunities you had besides with soccer. Yeah, when I was – I grew up in a place in in Kearney, and we like to call it Soccer Town USA, where – Unlike most places in the country, that that's what everybody was doing was playing soccer, right? So we were we were sort of the outliers, if you will. But with that, you know, we I was a kid that wanted to play everything. You know, I played hockey, I played baseball, I played basketball, uh, football, and you know, I just wanted to be out and be active and really be with my friends. And nothing really for me got too serious until sort of my senior high school, and I just gotten back uh, from that summer being with the under 20. Actually, at that time was the under 19 team. Uh, we didn't have an under 20 team at the time. Um, and that's where soccer started to maybe, Ray, take over a little bit, if you will. But I, I still had this ambition of, of playing baseball. Um, and I was playing through high school and, and I went to, I ended up going to UVA, as most people know, but most people probably don't know it was on a dual scholarship where I played base. I had half my scholarship was baseball, half my scholarship was soccer uh, because I, I just couldn't figure out what I liked more. I just enjoyed playing, you know, and then in, when I got to college and I'm sure we'll get into it, we qualified for the world cup and Ralph was part of that. And, and then the choice sort of became clear at that point, but I, I, I'm really a sports fan at heart. And I got, I love this game. This is my game. If you will, it's sort of what I know best, but I'm one of those guys that I can sit in front of the TV. If there's two teams or two athletes competing, you know, competing against each other, I'm perfectly fine sitting in front of the TV and you know, watching them figure out how one's going to beat the other, you know, and I, I just, I just love competition. Well, well Tony, you know, you, you went on that subject about Carney and I've seen a, it's a special place. It's a, it's unique in a sense that uh, it's soccer is important in the high school level. 
and the success, but also I think amazing that, you know, obviously yourself and Tab and, and Johnny Arks all came from that same group and, and, and more importantly, went on to be great players for our U.S. team. Can you just share a little bit about what made Carney in your eyes uh, so unique and special for growing up there? Yeah, well, Ralph, it started way before me, um, way before John and I got there. Actually, John's older brother was there. Tab came to move to the U.S. and, and oddly enough, moved to Kearney of all places. I think he was around 12 or 13 years old at the time. But our tradition started way before. I, I can remember being part of a camp when I was eight years old and John Miller, our head coach, was there at the camp. And, and I know you know John Miller it was the coolest thing when you were eight years old that your high school coach, I mean, how many kids say that now? Like, that's really cool that your high school coach was at a camp when you were eight years old, giving out awards. And little did we know that the guy was scouting, like from the, <laughs> the minute we could get down to the fields, you know, and, but he, he did it because he loved it. So in our, in our town, it was, remember I grew up in, in Kearney was predominantly Scottish and Irish heritage and, we all just wanted to be great at soccer. Everyone and, and great to us was making the varsity soccer team and winning a state championship because we wanted to be like the guys before us. You know, we all wanted a state championship jacket. We wanted like that was the cool thing in our town. And as odd as that sounds now, with with millions of dollars being thrown around in the game, that was our prize. That was what we wanted. And you mentioned that that documentary. When you're going through it, Ralph, and you guys both have been through successes, you know, in, in, in different times of your career, you don't realize it till after. Like, I didn't realize until after that movie came out about Soccer Town USA. We filmed that thing for two years. And, you know, I realized more now that I was part of something special then than I did then. Then I was just a kid, just like you or Ray. When you were kids, you just wanted to kick a soccer ball around or go compete and play with your friends, you know. So. It's odd how how life works sometimes, you know, and, and sometimes it goes your way and sometimes it doesn't. And we all deal with those things. But man, I can't tell you how lucky I was that my parents decided to move from Belleville, New Jersey, of all places, to Kearney, New Jersey, when I was four years old. And they had no idea. Um, I can't even think if I lived the next town over, what my, how different my life would be. I mean that seriously, just one town over. Tone, after high school, you went to UVA. Uh, obviously, as you said, you played baseball and soccer. You played for a legendary coach in Bruce Arena. What was it like to play for Bruce? How was he at the collegiate level, you know, and later on with the U.S. teams? What was your impression of him as a coach? The same guy that I know now. Like, he, he's just a natural-born leader, a guy that was born to stand up in front of the room and sort of command the room, right, and, and be a teacher and demand the best out of you all the time. And we joke with Bruce all the time. He's got his quirks and, you know, uh, he's a pain in the ass sometimes when you're playing for him, right? And just the, the, the thing I would say about him, and I, and I think now that I've learned about coaches, and you guys probably agree with this, if your level was a 7 out of 10, Bruce Arena was always trying to get an 8 out of you. Like, but you can never be a six. You know what I mean? And if you were a star player, like it was always you had to be the star all the time or, or in a, 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 maybe the best player or a top player. I don't know how you want to phrase it, but 
If you were a nine out of a 10, you needed to be a nine out of a 10 all the time. And an eight wasn't acceptable. A 10 was good. A nine was good. But an eight was not acceptable, if that makes sense. And I, and I think that's probably what I learned from him. Just try and be your best all the time in, in whatever you do. And, and up until that point, going to UVA, that was the second environment that I had been in. Because I told you, in my high school, it was a battle to get on the varsity team. There were so many good players. And you guys probably scouted in those areas back in the day. And you know how many good players there were. It was a battle. So I was not completely prepared, but I had an idea of what it would be like, you know, when I got to the next level, but I was ready for it. And Bruce just kind of enhanced that for me. And I, I'm lucky. Uh, I, I played for Bruce. I really am. I think, you know, you've probably both have had players who you recruit. Sometimes you fall into a relationship with with player coach relationship where you're like you weren't sure if that was going to work but after three or four years of being with that kid you realize that it was a good fit and sometimes you think they're a good fit in the beginning and then after three or four weeks you're like how can I get rid of this guy you know and um and I'm just saying that jokingly obviously but I think you know what I mean I, I just think when it comes to college coaches um, and, and later down the road, my time with him at the national team level, I, I just think it was a, he and I were a good fit. And, and I, I hope that he would would say the same. You talk about Connie, you know, for our listeners, besides you and John, you had Sal Rosamelia, another goalkeeper, Robbie McCourt. My, I'm talking about your era, Mikey O'Neill, Billy Gelka. Who else? All the other guys came through. In that time frame, you go in Carney and ask anybody who the best player to come out of Carney was. Nine out of ten people will tell you Billy Galka. He was amazing, Ray. And I, I think you, you, I'm, I don't know if you recruited him back then um, or you brought him to Southern. I was the assistant. He, he's the godfather of my youngest daughter, and him and I oh. are best friends now. Yeah. Oh, and he, he came. He, he came from Mercer. He's in preseason eight days, and our head coach Bob the Cranian who for all level was like Bruce, you know, makes him the captain. Eight days being there, first team All-American. We win the first national championship in the school's history. He sets up both goals in the final. A brilliant player, a better guy. Yeah. You watch him play, and, you know, he, he lacked a little bit athletically to be with you guys on the national team, but he had everything else in the game, didn't he? He is a guy that I, I kind of – I really respect. I love what he does with the kids at the high school – there hasn't been an event that hasn't gone by, whether it's a World Cup or whether it's an award or whether it's just a check-in when something's going on where he hasn't reached out and said, hey, you know, great job, you know, and this, that's just the kind of guy he is. There was Larry Hart. There was Robert Arena. There were the Monroe brothers. I mean, it, the list goes on. You mentioned Sal Rosemilia. Sal was as good a goalkeeper as anybody in the state of New Jersey. I ended up going to Columbia University and then played a little bit professionally you know, was the reason I played center forward my senior year in high school because we didn't have to worry about being in goal. And I didn't, you know, there was circumstance behind that, how that all happened. But we had great players everywhere. And it was just so, it was, but Ray, we did this 24 hours a day. Literally, my mother would, you know, she didn't know when I was coming home for dinner, uh, but she knew exactly where I was. I was down at the courts playing, which for me was, about two and a half blocks from my house. There were a hundred kids every single night down at the court, just waiting to get on, waiting for the next game to be over. We don't see a lot of that now. And I understand the environment is different, but 
for me, that's where guys got better. That's where guys competed. That's where guys learned, probably learned some things we shouldn't have learned playing, you know, because you're, you're a teenager and you're playing with sometimes 50-year-old guys. It's just the next six or eight guys, whatever we were playing that night, those, when the team loses, the next eight guys are on. And, and you're just waiting your turn. And the, the key was pretty simple. Like, go down there. Mike O'Neill would call people, whoever he wanted on the team, and said, you know, tonight you wear a white shirt, you know, or you wear a blue shirt tonight, you know, like the, the big make a deal O'Neill, um, who's the who's done a great job at, with the Rutgers women pro, women's program now for I don't know how many years. And you went there, and the key was not to lose. Because if uh, on a given night, if you lost, you could be sitting around for an hour waiting for a game, although you were playing on the side. But th- those environments don't exist anymore. But I think we, I think I probably learned more there than I learned anywhere with with any coach. With any, you, it, this was self learning. I'm really good when when you tell me, and, and I hope my coaches all felt the same way. Say, Tony, this is what we're going to do this game. Okay, I'm really good at following those directions. But I, I think. The, the sort of the, the players, the special players had somewhere in their environment where someone let them go, you know, and in our case, it was our parents letting us go because they just said, you know, go, you don't have to eat tonight. Just go play until 11 o'clock at night till they turn the lights out. That was for me, that was really, really important in, in development as an athlete, um, not necessarily so much as a soccer player, sure it helped there, but I think as an athlete and as a competitor. Well, Tony, let's go back because, you know, I remember seeing you the first time I was coaching Region 4 ODP and you were playing for Region 1, I think for Mr. Shellshite, and um, and they were picking the team for the, the next World Cup in uh, 87. And I'm looking at the time frame here. You go from 1987 playing, I think it was in Chile, and then you go from that to playing in 1989 in Trinidad to try to get us to Italy. And then like 1990, you're playing in a World Cup. Can you just fast track that whole thing? Because it's pretty remarkable for someone that young, especially a goalkeeper, to emerge and really do what you did. Because I don't think people really understand that pathway that you took because that was like being in the Audubon in the fast lane. Isn't that everyone's pathway, Ralph? <laughs> Seems normal, right? Um, yeah, a lot. Look, a lot of it was was just being in in and around the right people. I think one thing that's probably you were the coach or one of the coaches that saw me, right? I would think the the one thing that stood out, whether you thought I was a good goalkeeper or you didn't think I was a good goalkeeper, or I knew the game or didn't know the game, was that I I was an athlete, right? And I always, even when I was playing at the highest level, I would go into games and the first thing I would say to myself is, I need to be the best athlete on the field tonight, right? Because sometimes that helps you get out of messes, especially in my position. I could be in the wrong position. And I liken this to Tim Howard all the time. You look at the development of Tim Howard from when he first went to Europe to in the end. There's so many spectacular saves from Tim Howard initially uh, when he first got there. But a lot of them were, they show a clip in the EPL highlights all the time of Tim going back. And it's a great save, but he was in the wrong position to start with. But athletically, he got himself, he bailed himself out. And that's kind of how I looked at my career. 
as you sort of decline, I use the word decline as an athlete, right? Or don't become better as an athlete. You become better as a player where you understand the game. You're in better positions. You don't have to be as athletic. But I think back then I separated myself from, if I remember all the goalkeepers that were there at that time on the athletic front. And then I think people saw that, okay, well, we can take this athlete and we can teach him really how to be a goalkeeper. And I say that with air quotes, like how to be a real goalkeeper. And I was a studier. I studied everything. I mean, Dino Zoff was my man. And then when Hubert Birkenmeyer got to the Cosmos, I mean, I studied how he took crosses. He was so smooth on crosses, which, you know, was a big part of my game, which is not a big part of the game anymore. I mean, it drives me nuts that people work so much with their feet and they work very little on crosses anymore. But I understand the game has evolved. That two and a half year period, I was in in fast forward mode. That was it. I mean, I literally, if you remember, I got called in after the U-20s or at the time U-19s. We didn't have U-20s. I got called in when Alcus Panagulius was the manager. And I got thrown in in a game. Ralph, you know, is it called the Procter and Gamble games? I think it was. Yeah. Right? Is that right? Is that right? Yeah, Procter and Gamble. Okay, so I'm not going crazy yet. So I get thrown in a game and I take a guy down. It's my first international cap. I believe it was Ecuador. I take a guy down for a penalty kick. We lose. Uh, I'm getting yelled at by all the Chico Borjas, who was my roommate, who was great, by the way. Um, I'm literally 19 years old. I'm like, this, this can't be happening. Like, I, I'm not even supposed to be here. And then I don't get called for a year. And then you guys went to the Marble Cup in Giant Stadium, of all places. And if you remember the, you remember the sequence, David Vinoli was the number one goalkeeper, who one of my best friends, and I miss him dearly. He was the number one goalkeeper. He got hurt at the end of the Trinidad game, right, which I think he played in maybe in California that game. Jeff Dubeck was number two, so he was in camp. And then there was a series of guys that were Greg Kenny, Mark Dodd, um, guys that those two were like three and four. And they went to, they, they had, oddly enough, when the national team was playing, the professional league, I, I forget what it is, wasn't the NASL, um, but they had the finals, Colorado Foxes and somebody else. And those two goalkeepers were playing in the finals that weekend, so they couldn't come to camp, right? This would never happen now, but this is was the circumstances back then. Right. I literally had I you guys were in New Jersey and, and Tab and John both said, Well, Tony just got done with college. Why don't you bring him to camp? I was on the bench for the Benfica game, the first one. Nobody ever thinking I was gonna play. Jeff Dubeck, now we're in Giant Stadium. Remember forty thousand people, forty-five thousand that weekend, and Jeff Dubeck all of a sudden goes up for a cross and gets hit by the big Swedish forward. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, and he's gotta go out. And now I'm looking at Joe Macknick, who is the goalkeeper coach, and he's looking down the bench, and he's like, oh, man, we got to put this guy in, you know. And if you remember, I was running on the field. I'm, I, I've never let Joe forget this. He was so worried putting me in the game. Now, remember, that play was a penalty kick. So I'm going in for a penalty kick against Benfica. This is my first time with Bob Kanzler. I'm going in, and Joe's yelling as I'm on the field, punch it and punt it. Punch it and punt it. He didn't want me to catch the ball, and he didn't want me to play the ball. I just, he's literally, I'm running, and I can hear him, and I tell him all the time, Joe, do you still think I should be punching it and punting it every time? Every time I see him. 
So I go in the game, my first touch, I get a fingertip on the penalty kick, literally my first touch, picking the ball up out of the net and throwing it to, to midfield. And that's kind of how the whole thing started. And then there was the competition between between Venoli and I. So we're warming up, and Bob Gensler pulls the group at uh, right at the top of the box in a circle. And I don't I don't know what was going on. I was warming up with the goalkeepers, Venoli's uh, hitting crosses, you know, Joe's hitting volleys. And as the the group breaks it, at the top of the box, Bruce Murray turns. And there's a soccer ball there at the top of the box. And I said forever, Bruce has had the hardest shot I've ever played with. He turns around, and I'm going up for a cross, have no idea. And he turns around and takes a shot and hits me in the head and completely knocks me out cold. Oh, my God. I remember that. You remember? This is warm. Yeah, we were in in Austin, Italy, way up in northern Italy. Yep. and, And he knocks me out completely. And... David Vinoli now has to play, who I don't know if he was out the night before. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good chance. <laughs> and he had a shocker. And it, uh, he had, he had, right, Ralph, he had a terrible game. And Bob three crosses, and three goals. That's right. Yeah. So I came out at halftime. That's how my national team career really kicked off when I got knocked out. And I didn't even know about it. But Bob made the, the decision after that that I was going to play. And, and um, you know, David Vinoli was was my roommate in the World Cup. And I, um, why Bob Gansler decided that that was a good, and Ralph, you were probably in on it somehow, decided that was a good idea to put the 20-year-old punk in with the guy that was the starting goalkeeper, um, a guy who just took his job. He was the best roommate I had, the best teammate I had. He taught me so much about being a teammate. Uh, that I, I've told the story over and over again. He could have made my life miserable, and he didn't, man. He he made it better. Every single training, every single meeting, every single discussion about goalkeepers, you, sometimes you get lucky, man. I was lucky. It's a great story, and it uh, says a lot about David, you know, because uh, yeah. he, he had that humility to say, hey, okay, Tony's better, but I'm going to support him because when we brought him back in with the team – he had been away a little bit. I was glad that Bob brought him back because I thought, you know, his work previous with Lothar and so forth merited his work to be at that World Cup. So that's a great story, Tony. Real quick, remember, he had the Olympics in 88. I mean, Correct. He, was, he was recognized in that Olympics as one of the top two goalkeepers in that Olympics. And like, the guy wasn't a schlep, you know, like, so he could have been, he could have made this really, really hard. Uh, but he he couldn't have made it any easier. Um, to, to, and lessons being learned all along the way. So I mean, I just oh, I bring it up because people probably don't recognize Vinoli like that. They don't look at him like that. But that's really the level he was at. Tony, before I go, before I got another question or opinion up for you. First and foremost, I'm a fan, and you know, we're fortunate. I work with Tab at Hartford Athletic now. But you, Tab, Hoxie, Eric Winaldo, Murray, Blissey, Lindishman, Doyle, Coach Gansel, Coach Perez, people forget this now, but for me, you guys paved the way to make the MLS what it is, the national team situation is much better, college soccer became much better, and I want to thank you because you guys, I think, are, are often forgotten. I talked to Ralph about this 
on the coaching side, but also the players. You guys built this in 1990. And, uh, you know, all too often people don't recognize now, 30 years later. But thank you. Thank you for what you did for the game in this country. Thank you. You made my job easier. You made the game more important. You made it uh, be on television. You helped create a league for our guys to play in. So thank you. I really we do appreciate and respect what you did. I appreciate that, Ray, and it, it means a lot. And um, you know, Ralph was part of this. I, I I've said for years about Bob Gansler, and I I was lucky. You talking about being lucky again, right? I was lucky to play for him in Kansas City. That group. I mean, Ralph is in that group. They've never gotten the respect that that they deserve. Look, getting getting the the team to a World Cup now. Okay, you got you got guys that are playing for Chelsea and Juventus and Leeds and and the list goes on, right? You had guys that were working at uh, you know Leeds Plumbing Company and the you know and Juventus Pizzeria, you know, like in the off season, right, Ralph? I mean, you were. You know, we're we're always arguing about now. We're arguing about um, who's going to be not F twenty six, but who's going to be the last four or five guys on the roster. Back then, you guys were looking for four more guys to put at the end of the roster, right? It's completely. And I get times have changed, but what you guys did with that group, and I'll take myself out of the equation just because I don't I don't really like this whole thing is uncomfortable talking about myself. I say it all the time. But what you guys did with that group of guys should never, ever be forgotten um, in U.S. soccer history. It's always forgotten because of the world has changed. It's always forgotten, but it never should be. And it should be celebrated a hell of a lot more. And I say this, I've been saying this for years and years. And, and look, Bob was the head coach. Um, so he's the guy that takes the blame or gets the credit. And that's just the job you guys know as the head coach. That's just how, how it goes. I mean, Bob Gansler should have a freaking statue uh, of of his work. When when I hear you, I mean, you mentioned to me, Bruce, and, and Bruce deserves a statue as well. Right. Bob, what Bob Gansler did and what people don't give him credit for. And Ralph probably knows there are other guys that probably should have went to the World Cup in 1990. Bob Gansler was getting ready for 1994 in a time where we had no right to worry about four years down the road, right? And Bob Gansler was a visionary. And Ralph, you were, I'm sure, in every one of those decisions with Bob, right? You can probably speak to it better because I didn't learn about this until I got into the Hall of Fame in 2012 and Bob was there and, you know, I, I spent some time with him and we chatted about all of these things. And he looked at me. He used to call me Anthony all the time. You know, he said, Anthony, I wasn't worried about 1990. I was worried about 1994 and making sure you guys were ready. I'm thinking to myself, here's a guy who just gets us to the World Cup for the first time in 40 years. And if we don't do well, he's likely going to get fired. Right, because that's just what happens to coaches, and he's worried about us four years from now. If you think about the that commitment and sacrifice, I mean, Ralph, you you probably better to answer this question on how those decisions went. But when he told me that, and like I was, I had like chills that this guy would sacrifice. You know, his his he didn't. You know, he ends up winning another championship down the road, but he sacrificed his time at the World Cup for us. 
you know, for us to, to be good four years from now. Who, who the hell does that? It's never going to happen. Nobody. Tony, let me, let me ask you this. Purely soccer, no political, it's just soccer. Thoughts on how we did in Qatar 2022? What were your thoughts of the American group? I got exactly, Ray, what I thought we would get. Um, come down to the third game, have a chance to qualify against Iran. If you play well enough to qualify and get to the round of 16. I mean, I look at that Dutch side and, and you know, Eric and, Eric and I were on that show right after the U.S. got knocked out. So immediately after the final whistle, we were on, we were on air uh, on uh, Sirius and he was going on and on. About, I can't believe. And people were calling in like, how can we lose in the round? I said, OK, let me break it to you this way. Take that Dutch side and tell me which player one of our players would have replaced on that team. Not one for me. Not one. Maybe you could have said one. Maybe you would have given Tim Ream a go, who was outstanding in the World Cup. And that's not a knock on our players. We went to the World Cup as the second youngest, right, second youngest team in the World Cup. What's the expectation of that group? The expectation, getting out of the first round. Now, people will argue about Greg and his tactics and this whole geo thing about not playing. Coaches make decisions. We don't always like them. We don't always agree with them. Um, some of us get paid to sort of have an opinion on them. But I got exactly what I said before the World Cup out of the group as I, as I thought I was going to get. Now, I know already I will have different expectations for 2026. That's my next question. What do we need to do and where do we need to wind up in 2026? The first thing, uh, again, and I said this that same day after they got knocked out, going into 2026, all of our players, for me, need to be playing week in and week out at their clubs. They can't be substitutes. I don't care if you're at Chelsea and you're a substitute um, or you're at you know Juventus and you're playing six out of ten games. You need to be a starter on your team. That's, that's the bare minimum. If we're going to tout that this is the best generation of players, right, we've ever had, and I don't necessarily subscribe to that, but if you want to say that that's where we're at, then our best players on the national team should be playing every single week at their club team, for me. That's the bare minimum. We've mentioned it a couple times over the years on, on our show. You go back to 2002, had there been VAR in 2002, our team may have been in the World Cup semifinal. We lose to Germany, right, 1-0. When you uh, read what Germany and their, their manager and everyone had to say about 2002, that's all, the toughest game they played was against the U.S. If you remember, I didn't play that game. I was on the bench for Bruce. We kicked the crap out of Germany. And the, and the handball on the line, if we get a corner kick, it was actually Greg Berhalter, right? If we get a penalty kick at that point, that game changes and turns on its head. And if their goalkeeper doesn't stand on his head in that game, we we win. So when you think about how close we were to being in a semifinal in the World Cup in the modern game, I don't think that 2002 team gets credit. Look, Portugal was a team that some people thought were going to win the World Cup. And and you talk about Bruce. Here here's the story about that game. We work in North Carolina for three weeks on how we're going to defend against Portugal. If you can remember that team and the players they had, Rui Costa, I mean, they had everybody in that group, right? 
um, from Bahia, the goalkeeper. I mean, the, the Koto center back, that group was really good. We worked on defending, 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 and how, different areas of the field, and how meticulous the training was was incredible. We get to the pregame speech in the huddle, literally after the warm-ups, and Bruce says, F it. We're going to go pressure them. We're going to go pressure them from the first minute. <clears throat> now, we had worked on some pressing during the week for certain – during the month for certain instances. You know, we need a goal. Um, we're down. We got to go press. We got to press in certain areas. He literally says, F it. We're going to press them right now before we walk out on the field. Remember what we did? Everyone looked around. Yeah, yeah we remember. We were, and they were like hungry dogs going out against Portugal. So what we had worked on for literally a month got scrapped in like three seconds during the speech. <laughs> we went out and pressed Portugal all over the place. And it worked. I mean, and I guess, you know, you guys have coached thousands of games, right? Sometimes you have those instincts where you say, well, I just feel this. I feel that this is going to work. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. In that case, it worked. You know, so, yeah, so my expectation going back to this team is we have to put ourselves in a position where we're competing for a semifinal of a World Cup. First, we're home, right? You know when you're home, everything is catered to you. The travel is going to be catered. The arenas are going to be catered to where you're playing. So you're not going to be going from New York to L.A. and all of that. So you you got to be competing in a semifinal. Like, you have to be there to be a semifinalist at a minute. And, and you guys know at that point, when you get to a quarterfinal, anything can happen. And we saw that, right? So that's the expectation, I think, in 2026. Well, Tony, I'd like to first go back to just a little bit there, not long, but, you know, you mentioned about Coach Gansler, and obviously uh, he's a big mentor of mine, and, uh, you know, I had, I had no business being on that team and, 90, I was his assistant with the 89 under 19 World Cup, but him asking me to join him was a real thrill and an honor. But the, the fact of the matter is that, you know, we, we really did think ahead, which weren't a frick wanted. He said, look, guys, you're going to be my guys in 94. We got this World Cup. Let's make sure the nucleus of our team gets this baptism in a World Cup. So that's like yourself. It's like Harks. It's like Tab. You know, all these young guys, Balboa. And I think I think that, you know, after the 94 World Cup when we lost to Brazil, Coach Gansen and I are sitting on a beach in Redondo. And we had driven back from the Palo Alto game. And, I, and we had this kind of conversation where you're talking about. I started asking him all these things, you know, do you, do you think about this? Do you think about that? And clearly, uh, you're right. You're spot on on how we thought about it and, you know, and he, he was the one who called me to join Bora in 91 to join him with the staff that we won that first Gold Cup in, in L.A. And he said, you got to be there to help him. You know, you know, even though I said I, I, I should not, but he said, no, you must go. So coaches, coach believes red, white and blue. He's a great man. He's a he's truly doesn't get enough recognition. That's why I was thrilled. And I, I flew to D.C. to see you guys win it all. And, 2000 because I, I, you know, since we didn't get there, I thought, hey, we lost to you guys in the playoffs. At least, you know, let's let's see coach. He's a real mentor of mine to win it all. And I flew there on my own time to, to get there to see that championship. But you, you've been through a lot as a player and you've seen a lot. And uh, 
you know, I, I just want to, I think, go back to like our our little bit, not not a great history, but the 96 Metro Stars, New York, New Jersey Metro Stars, the league starts, you've paid your dues, you, you're on the team and you're happen to be on that same team with Tab and Peter uh, Vermes. And then uh, it's ironic that you and Peter are on that championship team in, in 2000. But if you could just share with the fans about that early beginnings of Major League Soccer, how it, how it meant to you as a player to come home and play and obviously play in Giant Stadium and then obviously to uh, to do what you've done in the game uh, because you surely have uh, done so much. You know, I was a, that was the start of what we all hoped would, would look like what it does today, right? That was the start of bringing the game to this country. I... I had I not got, and remember, we were assigned at that time. Um, had I not gotten signed to uh, New York, I was probably going to go back down to, uh, I wasn't going to go to Europe. I was going to go to Botafogo, it looked like, in Brazil. Uh, which, But they told me, oh, you can play at Giant Stadium and you'll be here and it's going to be great. And I decided, you know, I've always promoted the game. I always, I always wanted the, the game to grow here. There were other opportunities, but I thought I could make up some off the field stuff by being around and, and help the game that way. And part of me misses the fact that, that, you know, I couldn't get my work permit in Europe and I didn't, couldn't get my Italian passport. And I worked on all of those things tirelessly. Uh, but then the other part of me, when I look at what the game looks like today in this country, I think like we were a small part in helping all of us were a small part in helping that get to where it is it's probably a little bit more accelerated than I thought it was going to be um, getting to this point. But now I'm not surprised by anything that happens in the league. Now, not a team that comes in, not a stadium that's built. I don't want to take it for granted. I think some people, Ralph probably take it for granted because they don't remember 1996. Some of them hell probably weren't even born in 1996 that are, are, are fans of this league. Uh, but if we had a front row seat, right, in that thing, and it wasn't pretty all the time, but we were <laughs> soccer people, just like you guys are soccer people. Back then, you just did whatever you had to do, right, in, in your in your job uh, to make, I don't know, how many, I'm guessing you guys lined fields. You probably mowed the grass at some of your places, and, you know, you were the recruiter, the secretary, the travel agent, the the, the psychologist, you know, the head coach, the, all at once, you know, like you you did everything because that's what we did as players too. We we took on roles, and one of those roles was promoting the game, and I actually took pride in in that part of it as well. But yeah, it's part of the growth, and it was a fun time. That team. Um, that team underachieved, um, and that was that was our fault because we had guys, if you remember, Ralph, that all come from the World Cup, and we wanted things to be better, probably quicker than they people were able to make it better for us, you know. And we right. wanted we 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 thought maybe it would be some of the things would be a little bit more advanced than they weren't. It was a little bit of frustration. I think that was all around the league. I don't think that was exclusive to our locker room. But that team probably should have did a little bit better, and and it had nothing to do with anything but us in the end. And then we we straightened it out. All guys straightened it out. Guys went on to win championships, and we're where we're at. We're where we're at with the league right now. You were on three World Cup teams. You were obviously on the first team to go in forty years to Italy. Then you were on a team that got to host 
a World Cup, which the next World Cup will be here again. And then you got to be on, I agree with you 100%, a team that was really close to going further in that tournament in 2002. And uh, you had three different coaches as well. And uh, I just wanted to just get your take. I've never asked you that question on that 12-year span from 90 to 2002, being on three World Cup teams. Uh, what, what do you think about that, that, that experience itself? Um, well, obviously, being in the World Cup is great. Um, it, with the first two, if I had two places in the world, if you said, Tony, pick two places in the world, you want to play in a World Cup. <laughs> well, knowing my heritage, <laughs> be the U.S., obviously, in Italy. So I, I look at it like I had the warm-up in Italy in 1990, and then we came to the U.S., right, in, in 94. 98 was interesting. Because, you know, I'd left the team, um, had an illness in the family, and I left the, the I left sort of the international traveling around. And I, I was, we come off of June of 1994. The league was supposed to start in 1995, if you remember. Um, I didn't go to Europe. They make a decision somewhere in December, January of 94, January of 95, that their league is not going to start now until 1996. So now I'm screwed. Right. And like, what am I going to do now? Um, and I had that little stint with the New York Jets. And that was a thing where I, I had always said I wanted to try it and had the opportunity to try it because I was waiting for the league to start. So now I'm stuck. Luckily, I had the Long Island Rough Riders. You get fast forward to 1998, where I had played really well in 96 and 97. And Steve was the coach in 1998. And, and the soccer gods blessed me because that team was a mess. Right from when they got to when they got to the World Cup, they were just a complete mess. But you know, Steve told me that he wanted bigger goalkeepers. He wanted taller goalkeepers, and that was his take on goalkeepers. So I had to respect that. Um, didn't go to that, and then to skip a World Cup for me, and then play well enough to get to another World Cup for me personally. When I think about achievements, the eight-year achievement from '94 to 2002 to stay steady enough as a player to even be thought about for the World Cup team, for me, that's bigger than, you know, uh, an, an individual game or an award or anything like that, the, the longevity of that. Because everyone asks, when, when you ask me about my career, like what do you I, – I used to do this, what do you think about your national team career? My national team career was pretty simple. <laughs> 100 games, I had five – really good ones. I had five really bad ones and I had 90 that were all the same, right? Where I did my job, right? And that's kind of, I think is, I think is good. You know, I, I think like that's for me, that's you, you're, you're coaches, but if you're a player, the last thing you want to worry about your goalkeeper, if you're a coach, the last thing you want to worry about your goalkeeper, I just wanted to be the guy that they didn't worry about. Right. And that then that for me was it. So 100 games had five good ones, five bad ones, and the rest all looked the same to me. And that's kind of how I sum up my national team career. But, yeah, for me, the longevity. So I retired from I, I never officially retired. So I'm still available, by the way, Ray, if you guys need anything. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I literally almost played on the national team my entire career you know, from start to finish, not just club football. I came from college on a national team. 
to two years before I re- before my last game that I played in the national team. So I was almost on a national team my entire footballing career. Good for you. Two, hey, Tony, a couple quick hits here. One, give a shout out here. Tell tell the listeners about your radio show where they can listen to it. Get yeah. Information. Yeah. 6M uh, FC uh, channel 157. We're on every weeknight from four to seven. Um, unless we have a game on, we're on five to seven every single night. Been doing it, Ray, 11 years now. I can't believe it's that long. I never wanted to be in media to begin with. And here I am uh, 11 years down the road. So that's, that's that. Also, I only picked this up through a conversation with you, but tell us a little bit. We understand your son's a pretty good baseball player. Oh, the young one. Yeah. He's at, uh, he's at Oklahoma state. So my oldest played at Stetson. He's done playing. My daughter played at Palm Beach Atlantic. Uh, so we moved to Florida because my youngest one was playing down here on his club team. When people argue about how expensive youth soccer is, they have no idea. I say this all the time. They have no idea <laughs> until they, unless their kids are playing baseball. Um, and anyway, we moved down to Florida because his club team was in Orlando. So he was traveling down here every single weekend. Um, and we thought for sure he'd go to a Florida school and then he decides to go to Oklahoma state. I don't know if you know geography, but that's in the middle of the country. It's not an easy flight from Florida to Stillwater, Oklahoma, but I appreciate you asking. He's a sophomore. Uh, this is a big year for him. Um, so I'm looking forward to catching a lot of games. He had a really good freshman year and this is a, this is a big, big, uh, year for him. So fingers crossed, knock on wood, all those things that he stays healthy and, um, I, I, I love, I love watching kids compete and I love watching my own kid compete. And I, I see a little bit of me in, in him. Like he has, uh, he's a really, he's a, he's like his mom. He's a, the nicest person. Like this is the kid you want marrying your daughter. Um, but when he gets on the field, he has a little F you in it, in him. And, uh, that's, that's for me. That part's for me. <laughs> well, Tony, just real quick here to wrap this up. We, we thank you. I mean, you just did a show, as you said, three hours previous, and then you come on here with us. But, uh, you know, I always thought when Ray and I talked about people to get here to be in a podcast with us, for sure, we're, we're thankful that you're able to do this. And more importantly, I just want to say publicly, uh, I thank you for your service as a player, uh, what you've done in the game, and what you continue to do in the game. I've always said, you know, people always ask me, what's Tony like? And I always say, hey, what you see is what you get. He's a great man. He's a great-hearted man. And he's a dear friend. And uh, I wish you and your family nothing but the best. And uh, it was great having you on tonight to reminisce a little bit. Thanks to you guys, too, by the way. You guys have done so much. It's past giving everybody recognition right in our game because we're on to the next day all the time. But you guys deserve as much recognition as anyone for growing this game. So... Thank you to you guys as well. Thanks for listening to For the Love of the Game with Ralph and Ray. Be sure to leave us a review and follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk with you next time.